This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 3, Covenantal Progress. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains, and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive, and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy dross and thy silver and thy gold be multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. Deuteronomy 8, 6-14a, 17-19 This passage in Deuteronomy presents the biblical basis of progress in history. Without this vision of God's covenantal judgments in history, there can be no legitimate Christian basis for belief in God-honoring cultural advancement over long periods of time. It establishes the concept of God's sanctions in history, both positive and negative. The passage teaches that in history, there will be both positive feedback and negative feedback. Any attempt to renounce this passage as no longer judicially binding in the New Covenant era is inescapably a denial of any biblical basis for God-honoring cultural progress in history. The passage begins with an imperative. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. It immediately offers a reason. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. God was about to give to this people an unmerited gift in the midst of history, control over the promised land. Here is a fundamental principle of both theology and history. God's grace precedes man's response. The proper response is obedience to God's revealed law. The Paradox of Deuteronomy 8 It is God who giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. It could not be any clearer. The economic success that God was promising to his covenant people in the future was based on the original promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no autonomous power in man's possession that enables him to become productive. As James puts it, quote, Every good and perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, 
neither shadow of turning. Unquote. James 1.17 The power to get wealth was God's reconfirmation of the Sinai covenant with Israel, which was in turn a renewal of his original covenant with the patriarchs. Another sign of the covenantal nature of these promises was God's promise of future negative sanctions. Quote, and it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. End quote. This is the sanction of covenantal death and corporate disinheritance. The biblical covenant establishes the possibility of long-term economic growth, a promise that was unique in the ancient world. It established the possibility of compounding. If his covenant people remained faithful, he promised them he would, they would greatly expand their possessions. The capital and resources needed to extend God's kingdom across the face of the earth are assured, all in good covenant-keeping time. But if men misinterpret the source of their wealth and attribute it humanistically to the work of their own hands, they become guilty of idolatry. God will come to judge them in the midst of history. This is the paradox of Deuteronomy 8. Wealth is both a positive and negative sanction. The Israelites began their fulfillment of the dominion covenant with wealth that they did not produce. They were given the law of God, the ultimate tool of dominion. They were told to obey it. The reason given is intensely practical, because God is going to deliver a rich land into their hands. This in turn will call for continued thankfulness. Quote, when thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Unquote. This thankfulness will be assigned to God of their continued covenantal faithfulness. The wealth of the land could become a snare to them. Here is the paradox of wealth. Quote, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. End quote. God then lists the many economic blessings that can serve as a snare. Quote, thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied. End quote. The language points back to the original covenant with Adam. Quote, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Unquote. Genesis 1.28 The two tables of the law are become covenant-keeping man's multiplication tables. So, the external blessings can become the means of man's public display of his covenantal rebellion, which is followed by God's covenantal wrath. The positive feedback of obedience, thankfulness, and further blessings can become the negative feedback of disobedience, humanism, and destruction. All of this is historical. This is because God's covenant is historical. History has eternal consequences. Some critic might conclude that because wealth and visible success can be snares as well as blessings, the sanction of success is neutral. It does not allow us to distinguish between good and evil men. If wealth were both compounding and unbounded in time, this criticism would carry considerable weight. It would then be true that in history the sanction would appear to be neutral. But the sanction would not be neutral. It would be perverse. It would subsidize evil. The covenant breaker would have no external reason to repent. But the point is that all the positive sanctions for a covenant breaking society are limited by time. Like the trap that eventually gets sprung, 
so is God's negative sanction of wealth to covenant breakers. The covenant keeper has more than the external sanction of wealth itself to inform him regarding the positive or negative impact of the sanction. He has God's revelation of himself in the Bible. The covenant keeper is capable of making accurate moral judgments apart from mere visible sanctions. He knows what God did to Israel in the wilderness when they complained against him, demanding more blessings. Quote, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Unquote. Psalm 106.15 Men recognize the truth of this. A lyric by Steve Gillette and David McKechnie has summarized quite well this condition of emptiness in the midst of wealth. Quote, We've got all of the nice things we wanted, but we lost the good thing we had. Unquote. The covenantal question is not simply this, quote, how much success does covenant-breaking society enjoy? End quote. It is this, quote, how much longer will God continue to lure his enemies into his trap? Unquote. Exponential growth. Nothing physical grows forever. At some point, the growing thing, whether individual or social, confronts inescapable environmental limits. This is as true of material goods as it is of populations. Anything that grows eventually runs out of space and material resources to sustain its growth. Anything that could grow indefinitely, no matter how slowly, would in time approach infinity as a limit. As time went on, the upward growth curve would become exponential. But there are limits to growth. The creation is not infinite. This includes time, the only irreplaceable resource. This finitude is not simply an aspect of the curse of the ground in Genesis 3:17 through 18. The material realm had curse-free limits even in the pre-fall era. The earth was only so big. So was the universe. So the command to be fruitful and multiply contained an unstated assumption. There are limits on mankind's time for dominion testing. At some point, the species known as man would have become a host like the angels. No more multiplication. Mankind would eventually have reached its numerical limits. This would have been the case even in a sin-free world. The very possibility of sustained growth points to the ultimate limit, time. Either growth must cease or time runs out. This is why modern man, while dedicated to the pursuit of economic growth, knows that this quest is ultimately doomed. His universe is finite. Growth points to his finitude, and more important, to the end of time. This thought is repugnant to covenant-breaking man, for it points to God's final judgment. Modern Madden then invents alternatives to God's final judgment and the end of time, the main one being nature's impersonal final judgment, the heat death of the universe. In the meantime, a few economists and a lot of political activists, the Greens, have become defenders of state-imposed limits to growth for the sake of the environment and mankind's, quote, quality of life, unquote. Who will define and police this high quality? Man's problem is not economic growth. His problem is sin. But he does not want to face this covenantal fact, so he seeks alternative explanations for his condition, as well as alternative solutions to it. Solutions and Trade-Offs This view of the limits of growth has consequences for social theory. Biologist Garrett Hardin, an articulate spokesman for the humanist worldview and a dedicated pro-abortionist, has put it this way, quote, if a system that includes positive feedback is to possess stability, it must also include negative feedback. 
unquote. He uses the thermostat as his model. When a room gets too hot, the thermostat cuts off the heat. When it gets too cold, it turns the heat back on. This stability cannot be perfect. A thermostat needs a fixed range of temperature in which to function, but the goal is stability. If applied to society, this outlook becomes the justification of a steady-state theory, if time is seen as essentially unbounded. The Bible, however, teaches that time is bounded. There are two approaches to the thermostat society. First is the approach of the free market. Automatic social controls are built into the economic system by mankind's evolving social institutions. They keep society stable. The second approach is that of the French Revolution, socialism, and communism, a scientifically planned and technocratically administered control system. In order to maintain stability, society needs central planning. Neither approach acknowledges God's covenants. There are many names for these rival approaches to social theory. Thomas Sowell's choice is as good as any. The constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. The first sees mankind as under-naturally and historically imposed constraints or limits, which include constraints on our knowledge. The second sees the existing constraints as primarily the result of faulty human institutions that are based on ignorance and superstition. Better knowledge is the goal of both approaches. The first sees knowledge as social and traditional, growing slowly over time, being tested in the real world. The second sees knowledge as the product of an elite core of neutral, objective philosophers and scientists. Social progress is the goal of both. The first sees it as the result of slow social evolution, including free market competition. The second sees it as the product of central planning and political power. The first viewpoint is essentially evolutionary and politically decentralist. The second is essentially revolutionary and politically centralist. Each of these social visions, however, presumes the autonomy of man and man's institutions. Both views deny the existence of a god who intervenes directly into history, bringing his sanctions in terms of his permanent ethical standards. Each vision is thoroughly humanistic. Both are the products of enlightenment speculation. Economists in both camps begin with the presupposition of agnosticism regarding the supernatural. Sowell describes the constraints school as holding to a world of scarcity and inescapable trade-offs in life. We must give up this in order to gain that. The second school is far more perfectionist. It searches for solutions, irrespective of trade-offs. It tends not to count the cost of action, especially costs of human suffering. Sowell quotes Thomas Jefferson on the bloodbath of the French Revolution, quote, My own affections have been deeply wounded by some of the martyrs of this cause, but rather than it should have failed, I would have seen half the earth desolated, unquote. Sowell uses another pair of adjectives, to describe the conflict of visions. Prudent versus perfectionist. The constraints visionary wants change, but prudent change. The unconstraints visionary believes in the perfectibility of man. The first thinks that human nature is fixed. The second believes that human nature is plastic or flexible. It is clear that the conservative social tradition and the free market economic tradition are both constraints-oriented in their view of how society operates even when the specific intellectual defenses of free market economic policies are made in terms of rigorous logic and a deep faith in logic. It is equally clear that the socialist tradition, until very recently, has been grounded on the denial of permanent 
environmental limits on man. The socialist always blamed man's poverty on defective social institutions based on private property. Apart from these corrupt institutions, nature would bestow her bounty on all men. Consider the estimate made by Marxist economist Howard J. Sherman, my former professor, probably the most widely published academic American Marxist economist. In 1972, he estimated that the United States had achieved such productivity that over a period of years, given proper central planning, price tags could be removed from 80% of the available goods. The remaining 20% would be luxury goods. For almost two centuries, each school of thought claimed that its system could deliver the goods, but socialists after 1980 were forced to admit that socialism does not deliver so many goods and services as capitalism does. They hid until 1989 behind the quality of life argument. Socialist countries supposedly had a better quality of life, despite their lower per capita wealth. Then Red China and Eastern Europe exploded, and Red China then contracted back into tyranny. In the aftermath, the West learned what only specialists had argued before the Chernobyl accident in 1986. The communist world had been far more polluted than societies in the free world. Tyranny, central planning, and poverty turn out to be bad for the quality of life. This was a shock to the socialists from which they will have difficulty recovering. Shifting Arguments Today, the unconstraints argument has shifted again. The great evil of capitalism is seen in its commitment to material economic growth. The world is limited, socialists now insist. What is needed now, they say, is a system of international, centrally imposed restraints on all polluting production, yet which also allows freedom to consumers and decentralized networking. They do not show how this fusion of central planning and local initiative is possible. In short, they have no economic theory, a point Mises made in 1920. Some defenders of the free market also shifted their focus, from material output to information. Previously, they had seen the economy as materially unlimited, open-ended, in the longer run, even though constrained by scarcity in the short run. After 1980, they began to talk about man's own mind as the primary source of wealth. As a progressing society shifts from manufacturing to services and information, it progressively escapes the fetters of material limits. There has been a near apotheosis of autonomous man, the entrepreneur. The power of man's mind is viewed as bordering on alchemy, from the self-transcendence of man's mind to a transcendent environment. The Christian view of progress, personal and social. The biblical view, being covenantal, is radically different from both the constraints and unconstraints view, for it begins with a different view of God, man, and history. But because social theory has been ignored by Christians for centuries, and because they have tended to absorb the reigning opinions from the intellectual world around them, Christians have not articulated this alternative. It is time to begin. The fundamental objection that Christianity has with the constraints view is that the constraints view has no doctrine of regeneration. It does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ, as perfect humanity, entered history to become a model for the world. It also does not acknowledge that in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus in history, a new world order was inaugurated. This new order begins with the interior life of the individual. Quote, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Unquote. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Man's nature is not fixed. 
It can be changed in an instant through conversion, the doctrine of regeneration. This personal transformation extends to man's social institutions, beginning with the church. It will ultimately affect man's physical existence. Quote, there shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner, being an hundred years old, shall be accursed. Unquote. Isaiah 65.20 Christianity's fundamental objection to the unconstraints view of, is that this transformation of human nature, although it takes place in history, does not originate in this world. Quote, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2.8-9 This change is not a product of social engineering, Man's earthly environment has nothing to do with the change, except as the arena in which the change takes place. Quote, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Unquote. Romans 10.17 Hearing the gospel is a necessary but not sufficient cause of the transformation of human nature. Quote, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Perfection, past, present, and future. Christianity has what the constraints view needs but cannot attain, a concept of perfection in history. Jesus Christ was perfect. He lived in perfect conformity to God the Father's perfect standards of righteousness. Quote, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Unquote. Luke 3.22 Quote, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. End quote. 2 Peter 1.17 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. End quote. 2 Corinthians 5.21 At the time of a person's salvation, the legal status of Jesus is imputed to him. This means that God's judicial declaration to Jesus, not guilty, is judicially transferred to the sinner in question. This is the, the doctrine of justification. Paul wrote of Abraham's faith in God's promise to him. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness." Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised Jesus up, Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Romans 4, 17-25 Jesus' legal status, not guilty, is transferred to the redeemed, bought-back person for a purpose to enable the person to begin a lifelong walk with God. Paul moved from Abraham's example to our tribulations in this life. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Romans 5, 1-9 But there is more to salvation than justification. There is also sanctification. The moral perfection of Jesus is transferred to the redeemed person. This transfer is definitive, a once-only lifetime event. It is also progressive, working out its implications in the life of every saint, set-apart person. He is to fight the good fight of faith. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. 1 Timothy 6, 6-12 He is to run the good race. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run, that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 So the biblical view of man is a concrete universal. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. He came in history specifically to meet God's standards. This is a categorical denial of the theology of the inevitable trade-offs view of life. Jesus did not sacrifice the good for the best. He did not choose the lesser of two evils. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. Jesus Christ is history's solution. He did not compromise with evil. He is therefore not a trade-off in the usual sense of the word, unless redeemed men worry about losing hell as the price of gaining heaven. This significantly qualifies the constraints view of man. We are to walk in life by imitating Christ. Quote, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. Unquote. Ephesians 5.1 Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Unquote. Philippians 2.5 The requirement is rigorous. Quote, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Unquote. Matthew 5.48 This sounds very much like the unconstrained view of man. 
it seems like a denial of the constrained view's trade-off of life. Yet if man is a sinner, he is constrained. How can this paradox be resolved? Trade-offs versus perfection. The requirement of pursuing perfect moral standards is not to say that we, in our sin, primary and ignorance secondary, do not make trade-offs in life. Jesus was clear. There are always costs and benefits in life, and we must count them carefully. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, What king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple." Luke fourteen twenty eight to thirty three. The point is, as we mature in the faith, these trade offs between sin and righteousness become less burdensome, i.e., less costly. When we walk in God's path, the alternative income potentially derived from walking on Satan's path becomes progressively lower. Quote, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man ga- give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16:26 Let us consider a concrete example. I could murder my wife and collect the insurance money. I might even get away with the crime in this life. She could do the same to me. The point is the quote, forfeited income unquote, of the face value of each of our insurance policies is of zero value to us with respect to the act of murder. The trade-off, not murdering my spouse versus the forfeited income, does not enter our calculations. It is therefore not a cost to either of us, economically speaking, for the only valid cost, at least some economists economists assure us, is individual psychic costs. Furthermore, if this non-calculation were not clearly, were not nearly universal among married people, common grace, insurance companies could not afford to write life insurance policies, and certainly not large ones. So the paradox is resolved by progressive sanctification. The possibility of personal moral progress is always before each person, but the Bible is specific. Widespread moral progress will produce widespread economic growth. The biblical covenant links obedience to God's law with God's blessings, which include prosperity. Deuteronomy 28, 1-14 Christianity asserts that there has been perfection in history. It also teaches that, by the power of God's regeneration of individuals and their progressive sanctification, people can approach perfection as a limit. We cannot achieve perfection in history. Quote, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Unquote. 1 John 1, 8. Nevertheless, we are required by God to work towards perfection. This is why we were granted salvation, to walk on God's righteous path. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8-10 The Covenantal Necessity of a Personal Revolution The Christian view of man is that man is born in sin and corruption. He is not born free, 
contrary to Rousseau. If man is in cultural and political chains, then this is because of his sin. His sin is not merely institutional, it is innately personal. In this sense, Christianity agrees with the older conservatism's view of man, though not the newer, economy in mind, doctrine of humanity. Man is inherently limited. Yet Christianity also teaches that a definitive transformation of the individual can take place in history. An individual can be judicially and morally transformed in a moment. This is the ultimate revolution in life. It cannot be imposed by other men. It is an act of coercion by God, irresistible grace. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Titus 3.5 For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. John 5.21 That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 1, 17-18 And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts thirteen forty eight. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. John three twenty seven. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Romans nine fifteen to 16 For who maketh thee to differ one from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 Of his own will he begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. James 1, 18. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians twelve three. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and that she attended unto the things which were spoken of, Paul. Acts 16.14 This instant transformation needs time and self-government to work itself out in history. The discontinuous event of salvation subsequently requires the continuous battle with sin in history. There is a spiritual war going on in each man's inward parts. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that, when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against me, against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am! 
Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Romans seven fourteen to 25 Civil Government Civil law plays a role in this war, the public suppression of evil. The state imposes negative sanctions against evil public acts. The civil magistrate is, in fact, a minister of God. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive in themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he heareth not, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Romans 13, 1-7 But the state is not an agency of salvation. It does not save man by making him positively good. It merely suppresses certain pub- evil public acts of men. Thus, the Christian view of civil government is far closer to the constrained view of man. It is totally opposed to the messianic state of the unconstrained view. Christianity teaches that the reform of society must begin with the reform of the individual. To sustain a positive reform of society, God must initiate his transforming grace among many people. He is the agent of positive transformation, not the state. All that the state can lawfully do is to suppress public evil. It imposes negative sanctions, rarely positive ones, e.g. roads. This is clearly an anti-socialist view of civil authority. Perfect standards, imperfect applications. Moral social standards are fixed. On this point, Christianity opposes both the social evolution of the constrained view and the social revolution of the unconstrained view. God's revealed law is permanent. It cannot be improved on. There is no doubt, however, that the application of these perfect standards to historical cases, the art of casuistry, is a trial-and-error process. It takes generations of experimentation and evaluation for a society to work out the implications of God's laws in history. History is always moving forward. Thus, the task of Christian reconstruction never ends. Even in the world beyond the final judgment, there will be trial-and-error and progress. Man cannot comprehend God. Man can never surround God's being or his mind. Man is a creature. Thus, life in this world is at best a never-ceasing striving towards perfection. In this sense, Christian social theory is closer to the constrained view than the unconstrained. Redemptive history is a continuous process. Step by step, we are required by God to learn from our mistakes and improve ourselves. Basic to this learning process in history is a system of sanctions positive and negative. We call God's negative sanctions against his people chastening. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted yet unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits, and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Hebrews 12, 1-10 Conclusion Basic to biblical social theory is the idea of cultural progress. God brings his positive and negative sanctions in history in terms of his fixed moral standards, which are revealed clearly only in the Bible. There is a concrete universal in history who has met these moral and judicial standards, Jesus Christ. Perfection has been attained once, and only once, in history. This perfection is imputed to a redeemed people at the point of their salvation, definitive sanctification. Nevertheless, perfection is not reached in history. It is a lifelong process, progressive sanctification. What is true of the individual is also true of covenantal and non-covenantal corporate units. Their members are required to strive all through history to reach perfection as a corporate limit by means of self-government, church government, family government, and civil government. Each form of government involves the application of appropriate sanctions. When their representatives refuse to apply them, God will apply his appropriate negative corporate sanctions in history. This only states what the social ideal is. The question then arises, can social progress be realized in history? Is it like individual sanctification, attainable progressively in history? On the answer to this question, the church has long been divided. Generally, the answer has been that there is no covenantally meaningful social progress. This has had crucial implications for Christian social theory, or the absence thereof. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.